morning. All right, friends, let's go and get started this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin our Sunday school. Uh, Father in heaven, we're grateful for um, your kindness to us. We're thankful for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for um, this um, time that you've set apart for us as a church to gather um, in your presence that you might draw near to us, that you might minister to us through your Son um, by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you be preparing our hearts for worship this morning and that you would dwell with us by your Spirit as we consider um, even um, what we believe and what we teach regarding um, the Scriptures um, that you have inspired by your Spirit, by which you have spoken to us um, of your Son. Um, we pray that you grant us wisdom during this hour. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, it's great to be with you. A handout is going out. Um, I think there are copies um, on, the, on the sound booth there. If you didn't get one, you can grab one there. Um, we are in the second week of a class on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, last Sunday, we um, began by um, considering um, some of the historical context of the confession and came out of a, a group of men called the Westminster Assembly um, in the mid-1600s in London, England, um, who gathered together to write a new confession um, for the Protestant church um, in England specifically, but um, became um, a, a document that had a much broader influence over time um, and is used today um, as one of the constitutional standards of our church, the Presbyterian churches in America, as well as um, other um, reformed, conservative reformed, orthodox uh, Presbyterian denominations as well, reformed denominations. Um, so it's, it's a document that has a lot of um, continuing influence um, and, and, um, in our lives today. Um, any questions from things that we talked about last week in terms of historical context, um, those kinds of things? Anyone need a copy? I would love for each one of you to have your own, your very own copy. Is anyone not here that needs a copy? I've got more if there are more that are needed. Raise your hands. Terry's passing them out. I think there are a couple over here too. Um, so as I explained last week, this, this um, edition of the standards, you need a copy. You have a question. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Ask your question. Um, could you describe for me the process of becoming a minister or a pastor in that time, at that time? So, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I do. I don't know how to describe that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Lauren, do you have any insight? Yeah. That they're not called to it, is that what you're saying? 
Well, I mean, I think, I think it's a fair critique to say that um, the kinds of educational opportunities and um, social connections that um, are necessary for one to go into the ministry um, are far more available to a broader swath of people today than they were in um, the 1600s. I'm, I'm confident that that's true. Um, just because of the way that um, society um, has changed over those that period of time. I guess my pushback would be, um, I mean, in terms of becoming a minister, I, I would, my assumption would be that it was a very similar process. We know that the Westminster Assembly examined men for the ministry, and so they were likely doing the same kind of work that we do as a Presbytery in our committees and in our, you know, as a whole where we are testing men based on their knowledge and commitment to, um, to theology, to the scriptures, to all the different things. Um, so I guess my pushback would be, you're right, in that, it, that the sort of pool of men who, was who were available to go into the ministry were not as probably wide as it is today, um, but that God still works through, you know, God always uses means to call men to the ministry. And um, he certainly is not limited in terms of, um, in terms of that. I, I guess I would also say that I have never heard, um, in terms of the, the men who specifically are part of the assembly, certainly a charge that has never been levied against them is that they were just there because they <clears throat> sought power or influence or, um, you know, they were just sort of, they weren't really sincere in terms of their, their convictions and their commitments to the scriptures and to the Christian faith. Um, and certainly um, it, it's also worth pointing out that within um, the context of the life of England in the hundred years previous, there had been a lot of times where it had not been in any way socially advantageous um, to be a reformed Protestant, um, and, and indeed the opposite. You know, people were killed at various times for um, translating the scriptures or believing um, things about justification by faith, those kinds of things, um, or were cut out of, um, you know, prominent positions. And, and so, and so I, I think that also pushes, that's another factor, I guess I would say, in terms of giving me confidence about the men who were part of this assembly. Um, and they gave 10 years of their life to it. Um, you know, it wasn't just like a, you kind of drop in and check your thing, but they, people were moving to London from all over the, the nation and, and setting up camp there for a decade. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think maybe David Calhoun did it. Does that sound right, Lauren? Uh, profiles? There are profiles. I think it's Banner of Truth that has biographies of many of them. Yeah. I think there's a book that has has something on all of like a couple pages on each. Right. I yeah. Think that's what I'm Is that referring to? Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a, I, mean I understand the, the cynicism, Donna, or the perspective in terms of. 
James. Yes. Trying to like reform right. the church. Right. So um, it may be that. And and I do I do think it's fair to say that there was um, there were there were varying levels of commitment um, within the the church at that time, um, even in the ministers. Um, but I would say my understanding of the assembly is that one of its main focuses was to clean that up. Um, and that's why they, you know, in the time that they, the 10 years that they gathered, they, um, as I said last week, they, they examined or, or booted out of the ministry 2,000 ministers during that time. And so they, a big part of their work was trying to purify the clergy, basically. Um, and they had been given the authority by parliament to do that, to examine both potential preachers, um, ministers, but also to, to look into um, situations where there was corruption, um, where there were men who were not suited for the ministry for whatever reason that would be. So, no, but that's a good question. Yeah. All right, let's, let's move into some of the, um, the actual text of the confession. So the handout that I've given you, if you didn't get one, there's a stack there on the back in the sound, on the sound booth um, that's available for you. Um, so I've tried to think about different ways to, to work through this with you all. Um, in terms of the handout, but the handout, so the handout I've given you has the text of the confession um, um, from um, uh, the first chapter, which is of scripture, um, paragraphs one through five. Um, So it has the actual text, which is the same thing you'd find in this, um, but it has the additional um, help perhaps of the proof texts that were added by the assembly. Um, to defend their doctrine after they wrote the confession. Remember, they brought it to Parliament and presented it, and it was ratified, but then Parliament said, we also want you to add proof texts in um, to show us where um, you're rooting these doctrines in the Scriptures. So they spent another year or so um, adding in um, scriptural proof texts um, for each uh, main argument within the confession. Um, So you can see that, that, for example, the, the A in parenthesis, um, corresponds in that first um, uh, paragraph um, to Psalm 19, 1 to 3, Romans 1, um, Romans 2, etc. And that carries on. And, and th- that kind of document is easily accessible with all the proof texts. If you just Google Westminster Confession of Faith with the proof texts, um, you'll find um, PDFs on the internet that have, you know, what I'm sharing with you here. Um, um, so that's, that's, that's what that is there. Um, so I just, I think what I'm going to do here is just walk through the actual text of the confession and we're just going to talk about it together and, and um, we can explore different, different um, corners of it as we go. Um, so the, the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with a chapter on scripture and that's interesting. Um, that's a deliberate decision um, by the divines um, who crafted it. Um, other Protestant confessions begin um, with um, a chapter on God, for example, um, or the Heidelberg Catechism begins with a question about what is your only comfort in life and in death. 
Um, but the, the writers of the standards um, wanted to start with scripture. And I think that's an epistemological decision as much as anything else. Um, it, was, it was deeply important to them um, that, that everything that they argued for um, throughout um, the confession be rooted in the word of God. And so they wanted to start with an, an explanation of, of the centrality of the scriptures uh, for the church and for any of its thinking about God any of its theological work um, had to be rooted in the scriptures themselves. And so they wanted to talk about what, is, what are the scriptures for? What do they say? What do they do? Um, what is their character? Um, and so that's why I think it begins with scripture. It's a, obviously they could have started with a chapter on God. That would have been just fine. Um, but, but it is interesting and distinctive that the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with a chapter on scripture. It is a, it is a, unique characteristic of this um, confession um, within the context of its time. So here's how the confession begins at the top of your handout, um, or you could read along in your, um, in your copy. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, and I should say that I've added the italics there. Those are just things that I wanna, um, wanted to highlight. Do so more... Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they, that is the light of nature, the works of creation and providence, they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, um, the spreading of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary those formal ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And again, you can see the proof text there keyed to different clauses within that paragraph. Um, really just one long sentence. <laughs> that, yes, it is, they are, the confession is a master of, uh, um, and you see this in the larger catechism too, maybe especially, um, of long sentences with lots of lots of subclauses. That's that's right. All right. So a couple things here just to explain. One is I just want to give some explanatory notes. Um, the light of nature. What does that mean? That means uh, what they're talking about there is the reality that man is created in the image of God, and as such has what Calvin described as a sense of the divine imprinted upon him. Um, we might refer to this as his conscience. Um, that seems to be the language that Paul uses in Romans. Um, we might just refer to this as, you know, the, the, the remnant of um, the reality that we are all created in God's image. So the light of nature there isn't referring so much as to, to nature as we commonly use that term today, like uh, trees or whatever, but the light of human nature, the light of our human nature being um, made in the image of God, of the divine. Um, the works of creation and providence, creation, of course, covers more, um, you know, what's out there, um, outside of us, so to speak. 
Um, but the light of nature refers largely to um, um, our, our identity as those who are created in God's image. So their argument there in the first clause is that the light of nature, um, man being made in God's image, and God's works of creation, um, so his creating of the world, um, all that we see with our eyes in terms of the physical creation, and his providence, which they'll define what they mean by providence later, but essentially what they mean by providence is God's um, care for the world, his upholding of the world, his overseeing of human history and of all that happens, all that he ordains. Um, these acts of God, um, his particular creation of the human race and his image, um, his making of all things um, that are, that exist, and um, his providential oversight of creation um, all throughout time. These things manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. Um, and they're choosing those words specifically, right? Um, and I, I think there's a lot of, it's interesting, I think that's a very precise definition of what these things reveal to us. God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's power. We can say that there is a God, if we look around the world, if we think about human history, if we think about our own selves and how we're made, um, and we can say, there is a God and that God is good and he's wise and he's powerful. Um, this is what's commonly referred to as general revelation. Um, it's called general revelation because it's re revelation that's given generally um, to everyone. It's, it's commonly available to the human race. Um, and general revelation, according um, to our beliefs and the confession, um, is given for everyone. And, and, and this, this um, uh, doctrine is rooted in Psalm 119. I'm sorry, well, Psalm 119 too, but Psalm 19 um, specifically, which talks about how um, the heavens declare the goodness and the glory of God, right? That God is always speaking through his creation. It's also rooted in um, Paul's um, language in Romans 1 and 2, where he talks about um, men being without excuse um, because of the way in which God has made all things and even their own consciences, um, which testify um, to them. Um, and that's where that language, general revelation, leaves men inexcusable in terms of their relationship to God. Um, they ought to worship God. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans 1. Um, they ought to worship the creator, um, but they worship the creation instead because of the corruption of mankind and the fall of Adam. So that's what we talk about in terms of general revelation. Um, general revelation can give us a sort of fundamental, um, basic understanding of God, um, but it, it is not sufficient um, as the next clause says, to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary for salvation. Um, so it, it, is, it is not sufficient um, for us to look inside of our, our consciences and our sense of the divine that we just inherently have. It's not sufficient to look at creation or God's providential care for um, all that he has made throughout history to then know what you need to know in order to be saved. Does that make sense? So they're making that distinction there between salvation and just a sort of basic understanding of God. Um, one thing that, that really comes out of um, this um, uh, argument that's being made in the confession is what I would call the foolishness of atheism. Um, there are people in our world today, of course, who claim to be atheists. Um, this is a uh, speaking within the context of human history, a, a relatively novel uh, movement, right? Um, where people aren't just denying the true God, they're denying that there is any God. Um, and of course, a lot of it's related to 
um, the science rise of the sort of scientific movement and um, Darwin and the 19th century and those things sort of lays the groundwork for atheism. But I think what the divines would say and what I would say is that, that to say there is no God and all that exists exists, I don't even know what the explanation is, right? By chance or something um, is an inherently foolish, um, non-defensible position intellectually um, because of the way in which God has revealed himself through general revelation. Um, Van Dixhorn, who is one of the commentators that I'm using, he's got this wonderful book that, that walks through the sort of historical context of the confession and all of the theological arguments that they're making. Um, he says we should, be, because of what the confession says here and the scriptures say, we should always remember that Christians should never be trying to prove the existence of God to unbelievers. Rather, we are reminding unbelievers of what they already know. Every person has been stung with the knowledge of God. And I think there is truth to that. And believe me, I understand there are people who, who set themselves up as atheists and try to construct um, intellectual arguments to defend that position. What I'm saying is I don't think they're tenable positions um, at all um, because, because of general revelation, because God has revealed himself. And I do think it's a different thing to say um, we, we don't need to go to those people and sort of try to prove that there is a God. We need to remind them of what deep down somewhere they know is actually true. Um, that there is a God um, and that he is a wise and powerful and ultimately a good God. Um, um, that, that understanding is available for the entire human race. Any thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, James. Yeah. Um, and gives us a sense of hope that evangelism can be effective, that we are actually coming in with revelation that has explanatory power for things that people already feel or know. Yes, absolutely. No, I think that's right. I think general revelation is a very hopeful doctrine. It's something that we should that we perhaps don't talk about enough often um, in, in reform circles. Um, we, sh we should talk about the importance and the, the fundamental goodness of general revelation as a gift from God, absolutely. Anything else? All right, so the, the paragraph here goes on to argue that because general revelation does not give us without it, which is necessary about God or his will um, for salvation, Therefore, it pleased the Lord. And I want to emphasize that, that, that God reveals himself. Our God is a God, uh, his fundamental character is that he is one who speaks. And this is how Hebrews 1, um, of course, defines God, right? Um, many, you know, um, a long time ago, in many ways, in many places, um, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. Um, our God is a, one, is a God who who delights to reveal himself to the creation that he has made, and particularly, of course, to the human race that he has made in his image. Um, it pleases him to do this. He doesn't need to do it, um, but he is a God who speaks, who reveals himself, who, who, who tells of his character, who does not leave us in ignorance. Therefore, it pleased the Lord 
at sundry times in diverse manners, that's language that's rooted right there in the beginning of Hebrews, to reveal himself um, and to declare that his will unto his church. And I think that's interesting because it shows us that the, the church, um, um, the, the kingdom is, is, is the place where God has particularly revealed himself um, um, unto salvation. Um, it's to his beloved, it's to the people um, we'll talk about this later, whom he has elected for himself um, to join to his son. Um, it is his church unto whom he has revealed himself in a particular, we would say, a special way, special revelation. And afterward, um, and, and, and so that reveal himself there that has been given unto the church, that, that goes back into the Old Testament. You think about how God revealed himself um, um, in the garden. Um, you, you might think about the, the first time that God... Um, after God created Adam and he spoke to him and told him about um, why he had made him, what the garden was for and what he was to do and what he was not to do. That, that's, you know, in many ways, the beginning of special revelation is that conversation that happened between God and Adam in the garden before the fall. We don't know exactly what form that conversation took, um, but that was, that's the kind of thing that is being talked about here, that, that kind of revelation that took place um, directly um, between God and his people. You think about the call of Abraham, right? Or when God draws near to Noah and tells him that he's going to judge the earth or, and how to construct the ark. Or you talk, think about how God calls Abraham out of Ur or how he appears to him and shows him the, the stars and says, you know, this is what your descendants will be like. Um, you know, continue to trust me to provide for you, et cetera, et cetera. So God is revealing himself. That's the character of God. If you re read the Old Testament, right? Um, Exodus 3, um, Israel's crying out and, and slavery unto God, at the very end of Exodus 2 actually, has this fascinating paragraph about Israel suffering um, within Egypt, and they, they says they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard. And the very next thing that happens in Exodus 3, after the Lord heard, is that God speaks, God shows up in the burning bush, and he calls Moses, and he says, I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh. Um, I am who I am, and he sends, so God is always speaking to his people. He's revealing himself um, uh, to his church um, specifically, and he's, he's doing that in a particular way, right? He's, he's revealing himself to Abraham. He's not speaking in the same way um, to all the other uh, people um, in the world at that time. Um, you know, Abraham is the only one, um, as far as we know, that was called um, to leave Ur and to go um, to the land of Canaan. So it's a special revelation. It's a revelation that's, that's um, narrow in scope. Um, of, though, of course, the, the, as he explains to Abraham in Genesis 12, the reason why he's revealing himself to Abraham is so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed um, through Abraham, um, that, that, that ultimately that revelation might have a very broad scope. Um, so, so this is the way in which God uh, revealed himself at one time in history was through we might call direct speech, right? Or visions or dreams. Um, you think about when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the law from God. God actually reveals himself by uh, engraving the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, right? Um, there's all these very direct, um, almost, we might say, unmediated um, revelation of God um, to the church um, specifically. Um, and, and God does this because he please, he's pleased to do it. He wants to reveal himself so that a people might be saved, um, so that his son might have a bride, um, as Jonathan Edwards says. Um, and, but afterwards, after that time of direct, immediate revelation between God and his church, 
afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth. Um, so to better preserve God's revelation, to keep it um, set so it doesn't, it's not misunderstood. Um, it doesn't, it's not lost. And so that it might be better propagated, that it might be better spread um, so that it's not just the one person, Abraham or whomever, who received the revelation that knows about it. Um, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, that the church might be better um, guarded and comforted um, and built up against the corruption of the flesh. Um, so the tendency that we might have to, to doubt, you know, did God really say this to Abraham? Um, the malice of Satan. Um, it's interesting, right? One of the things that Satan does is questions the character of God when it comes to Jesus um, in, in, in the wilderness of the world. Um, to commit the same, that special revelation that God gave to the church, wholly unto writing. So I think that's an interesting thing that they're arguing there, right? That at one time God revealed himself um, in, in almost an unmediated way. Um, through direct speech, through visions, through dreams, um, through his voice speaking to people. But then for the, for the betterment of the church, so the church might be established and comforted, um, God willed that that revelation be committed unto writing, that it be written down, um, that it be set in that way, uh, which maketh the Holy Scripture, which is the writing of God's special revelation, the record of it, the written record of it, to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Um, so we would say with the standards, um, and I believe with the scriptures, that um, God doesn't speak to people in that way any longer. Um, he does not reveal himself um, to anyone in the human race in the way that he revealed himself to Abraham or to Noah or to whomever um, in the Old Testament when he came and spoke to them in that kind of, or to Moses, um, that kind of unmediated um, sort of contact. And the reason for that is encapsulated in Hebrews 1, that long ago in many times, in many ways, God spoke through the prophets, but now how has he spoken? Through his son. And if he has spoken through his son, he doesn't have anything else to say, right? The, the word that he has spoken in our Lord Jesus Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and, and even present ministry for us at the Father's right hand, all that needs to be said about God has been said. Um, and so there is no further revelation. Um, there is no continuing um, word from God in a direct, immediate way um, that we might look for or receive or put our hope in and trust in. Um, rather, we sh if we want to hear what God has to say about himself, um, we should look certainly to general revelation, to creation, but specifically we should look to um, the, the direct revelation he has given through to his church that has been recorded for us in Holy Scripture. Does that make sense? All right. Any thoughts or questions about any of this? We all on board? No one wants to push back? Yeah, Sam.
Yeah. So this is this is a that's a great question, Sam. This is a, a a way in which the Reformed tradition and I would say the classical Protestant tradition um, is at odds with the the modern day Pentecostal movement um, that really began in the early 1900s um, with Azusa Street. Um, and that there, there, and I lived in that world. I, I knew it from the inside. Um, and there was, this is one of the things that, that as a college student, uh, or as a young man, about 18 years old, um, when I spent six months overseas with the Pentecostal organization, um, there was always this emphasis on um, words of prophecy, right? Um, or someone, someone was, you were meant to, to be constantly praying whether the Lord would give you a word for someone else or they might have a word for you or God might, you know, it's this idea that God is going to reveal himself in some way, um, uh, especially for you and you need to be on the lookout for that. And, and, and ultimately it was, it was my sense that this is not wise. There are no guardrails on this. There are no, um, you know, it creates a situation that is, um, I think not re- just not good uh, for people spiritually that that led me to sort of question um, the Pentecostal my Pentecostal experience and look for something that was more historically rooted um, and rooted in the scriptures. Um, what I would say to people like that, Sam, is um, certainly I am not going to stand up here and say that Jesus can't do whatever Jesus wants to do, um, and so. Can Jesus appear to people in their dreams? I mean, yeah, he can. Um, I'm, you hear stories about you know this happening in places where the gospel has not uh, penetrated. Um, Muslim countries, particularly, this is something that has been described, um, that Jesus might appear to someone in a dream. And certainly I think the Lord can do that, um, but it is very much, if he does that, the exception, A. Um, and B, um, He's, there's we know revelation that in any way is going to be on level with scripture that would come through that. Does that make sense? Um, and I would generally just say, you know, people are, when people tell me, um, well, I, I really want God to speak to me, I would say, well, he is speaking to you, right? Where has he promised to speak to you? He's promised to speak to you in his word. He's promised to speak to you through the preaching of the church, of his word. He's promised to speak to you in prayer, um, in the sacrament, all these ways, but particularly in the scriptures, is where God has promised to reveal himself to you. So go there. Um, Go to the place where God has actually promised to speak if you want to hear from God. Um, and And I believe that the Spirit does guide us, of course, and direct us. There's not just some sort of robotic, you know, God only speaks to me through, you know, the logical arguments of Scripture or something. Um, but I, would, I wouldn't see that as any kind of contradiction to God speaking through Scripture, that His Spirit, um, and we're going to talk about this later, that the Spirit has a, has a distinctive hermeneutical role in the interpretation, application of Scripture that we refer to as illumination within the Reformed tradition. We say that it's not sufficient for someone just to read the scriptures and then they can know God. No, actually the spirit has to be at work in that process um, to illuminate the scriptures for us um, so that we can hear the voice of Christ. Um, And that's what I would encourage people to do. Um, Rather than putting stock in dreams or visions or searching for that, um, to go to the place where God has promised to reliably speak and to ask for the spirit to work through those means, through the scriptures primarily 
um, to reveal himself to them. That's, that's what I would say. Um, Scott and then Jeremy. And I would follow up on one of the points that you made. Even if you do allow for the exceptional circumstance like you're talking about outside uh, the first century, I think one guardrail is that there will be those who doctrine as it says in Proverbs. Absolutely. Sure. Right. Right. Absolutely. That's right. And I would tend to be very, I would really want to push back on people. Like if someone came to me and said, well, I was praying and God told me that I, you know, I, I have to take this job or something, or I have to move to, I don't know, wherever. Um, I, I, as your pastor, I would probably push back on that and say, well, the Lord may be leading you in that way, but, but what are the things that he has revealed to you in terms of the principles of scripture, the what does it mean for you to be wise as you evaluate your life? Um, those kinds of things. I don't think that God typically sort of overrides our, our, our intellectual faculties and the revelation that he's given in scripture and just like tells us what to do, right? Um, if, if, you know, I have a young lady in the church um, who comes to me and says, well, this young man told me that, you know, God, he had a dream and Jesus said um, that he needed to marry me. Um, I would say, well, you know, let's... Um, Let's pack that up a little bit. Um, I don't think that's typically, but people do that, right? People have words from the Lord and, and they go to you and said, well, God said I had to do this. And, and I, I would just be very skeptical, I guess, of the Lord revealing himself to people in that way, genuinely. Um, yes, Jeremy. Absolutely. God can certainly minister to us in dreams. Um, absolutely. But he's not, I don't think he's going to reveal himself in some way that he's not already revealing himself in the scriptures. Yeah. Sure. Anything else? All right, let's keep moving for a few minutes. All right, so the next two um, sections are pretty straightforward. Um, and, and I'll just say, I'll end with this um, about that first paragraph. Um, this is why it's so important for our worship to be rooted in the scriptures. So, so in, this is why we read so much scripture um, in our worship service. This is why so many of our prayers um, are either directly or, or you know, sort of by um, or deduced, or they're directly scriptural language or deduced from scriptural language. Um, and the same for our, our hymns and those kinds of things. Um, I mean, if you look at our order of worship, there's scripture from beginning to end. And this is why, because we believe that God reve has revealed himself in a particular way um, for the establishment and comfort of his church um, through the scriptures. And so our worship should be centered in an in a, in a intentional, profound way around the word of God, um, rather than some other means um, or some other um, 
source of, of you know, inspiration. Um, the scriptures, that's why the scriptures are the heart of what we do as the church, a church here in our local congregation is because of what, the, what we believe about the scriptures that's summarized in that first paragraph. All right, so the second paragraph here, um, you can look down Roman numeral two, I've bolded it for you. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these, and I didn't list them out, but what's then listed in the confession is just the names of all the books of the Bible that you would see if you opened one of the pew Bibles that we have in the back. Um, just the sort of typical books that you see in um, a kind of, I guess, a Protestant um, edition of the Bible. All of which are given by inspiration of God um, to be the rule of faith and life. Um, so, so they want to specifically delineate which books are scriptural um, and, and why might they want to do that? Historically, anybody know? Anybody know what happened at the Council of Trent? Not long before this? The Council of Trent um, um, that met in the end of the, towards the end of the um, 1500s um, was the Roman Catholic Council that was in response to the Reformation and, and anathematized uh, many of the Reformation doctrines. The Council of Trent was, in my view, the most disastrous council of the church um, in its history. Um, and would that the Lord would be merciful to the Church of Rome and that they would recant, recant the Council of Trent and um, turn it back. That would be remarkable. Um, but one of Trent's many, many errors was that they um, codified the addition of uh, what's known as the Apocrypha today. Um, the Apocryphal books were elevated to the level of Holy Scripture. Um, the Apocryphal books um, largely are books that were written between um, 400 or so BC um, to the life of Christ, to the time of Christ. Um, they're books that have names like Tobit or Ecclesiastes, which is different than Ecclesiastes, um, and um, other books like that. I, I don't even, I'm not an expert on the Apocrypha. I can't even recall uh, most of their names. But um, there's about eight or so books that were written during that period um, that were elevated to um, the level of scripture by the Roman church. Um, and, and as we see in this third paragraph, um, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being a divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of scripture, and therefore of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Um, so they want to very clearly say, we don't believe the Apocrypha is canonical or inspired by God, breathed out by God in the way that the scriptures are. Um, and so they might be interesting historical documents, but that's all they are. Um, they don't have any additional value beyond that. Um, and, and again, I'm not an expert in the Apocrypha um, and it, by any stretch. I've never read uh, most of it. Um, but my understanding is that there are some Roman Catholic doctrines that come out of apocryphal books, like the doctrine of purgatory, for example, um, is rooted um, um, in terms of any root it has in the quote-unquote scriptures is not in what we would um, understand to be the scriptures, but in um, some of the apocryphal books. Um, there's a quote that I put there on the back that sort of uh, by a guy named Michael Kruger, who teaches at uh, Reform Seminary in Charlotte. He's a great um, I think he's probably one of the best evangelical reform voices right now in issues of canon um, in the scriptures and the inspiration of the scriptures and the reliability of the scriptures. 
You can Google his name. He's got great books on the canon, etc. Michael Kruger. So he writes this. He says, The Apocrypha are made up of two groups of writings, the Old Testament Apocrypha books, which are more well-known due to their inclusion in the Roman Catholic canon, and the New Testament Apocrypha books. New Testament Apocrypha books are things like the Gospel of Thomas or um, the Shepherd of Hermas or you know things like that um, that are... Um, the Old Testament Apocryphal books are written in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament and were not considered canonical by the Jews of Jesus' own time, nor by most of the early church fathers. So the, the, the Old Testament that we use today, um, excluding the Apocrypha, is the same Old Testament that our Lord used, right? Um, Jesus wasn't quoting Tobit. Um, and this is one of the distinctives about why we don't use the Apocrypha is that the New Testament is, is always quoting the Old Testament, right? It's all over the place. Um, and never are Apocryphal books quoted um, explicitly in the New Testament. Um, and that's a huge distinction in terms of they're, they're not, the apostles aren't giving them the same weight as they are giving the Old Testament scriptures. Does that make sense? Um, so that's a just another reason, um, to not see them as inspired. It was not until the Council of Trent, so in the 1500s, late 1500s, that the Roman Church officially declared the Old Testament Apocrypha to be fully canonical. Um, the New Testament Apocrypha books, with one exception, and I believe that's the Shepherd of Hermas, were never contenders for inclusion in the Christian canon. This is because they were all written in the second or even third century. Um, Many of them also include systems of doctrine, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example, that are antithetical to the doctrine included in canonical scripture. The Gospel of Thomas is a quote-unquote agnostic gospel that has a lot of false teaching, um, and is, there's no indication that it's written by Thomas. Um, it's just given that name. Yes, Eric. I honestly do not have answered that question in terms of the, the Orthodox Church. Yeah. I don't know whether they have this, a similar, that they're scriptural in the same way. Um, certainly there were church fathers who um, appreciate, I mean, Augustine is an example of this, um, who read the Apocrypha and quoted it. It's not clear to me that he saw it on the same level as scripture. Certainly he had a higher view of it than we would um, today. Um, you know, I'm a fairly learned guy in the, um, you know, PCA, and I've never, I've never, like I've said to you, I've never even read the Apocrypha. Like, it's just not, this is not part of my wheelhouse. Um, and if, sure, yeah, and, and there's nothing wrong with having a copy of the Apocrypha. Um, there's nothing wrong with, I wouldn't put it, in the same edition as I put Genesis to Revelation because I wouldn't want to confuse people as to its standing. Um, and as the writers of the standard say here, um, they you know, can be approved and made use of in the same way that other human writings are approved and made use of. And so there may be interesting, helpful things in the Apocrypha. Um, but but I, I think there's very good reason. And, and I think one of the things I would 
I would say, again, emphasize in response to what you're saying, Eric, is, is that reality of thinking about how much the New Testament is drawing from the Old Testament scriptures. And if the apostles saw the apocryphal books as being canonical, you know, if they saw Tobit as being the same as Isaiah, um, then why did they quote from Isaiah 200 times, um, so whatever it is, um, and never from Tobit? You know, I, I think for me, that's a pretty clear indication of how the apostles viewed the apocryphal books. Um, because yes, they knew about them, um, but they were not, when I say they weren't part of the canon at the time of Jesus, it's not that they didn't exist or they weren't heard of, um, but they weren't treated with the same authority. Um, and I, I would argue that that's been the consistent view of the church um, throughout the ages. Um, and where we've deviated from that view has been a corruption of the truth um, rather than, you know, I don't think we're missing anything um, by not having the Apocrypha at all <laughs> in terms of God's revelation. Any final questions? We've got about a minute left. No final questions or comments? All right, well, this is great. I think this is really, it's, we just, it's so good for us to think about what we believe um, regarding the scriptures and what they teach and what they're for, and we'll continue to do that as we walk through this. This is one of the best chapters, I think, in all of the confession. Um, it's an incredibly well-articulated doctrine of Holy Scripture. It's very thorough. So I have a lot more to talk about next week. Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks um, for your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself. Thank you particularly for the ways in which you have given us your special revelation um, in the Holy Scripture, Father, and that all of it, um, the Psalms, the law, the prophets, um, the New Testament, the apostles, all of them bear witness to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray um, that as we receive that revelation that you've given to us, um, particularly in your Son and the Scripture's witness of him, um, that you would build up our knowledge of yourself, that we might be um, established um, and comforted um, in the true faith, even as um, the confession teaches. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.